Hello and welcome to another episode of Riding Unicorns, the podcast that celebrates high growth businesses and the people behind them. Today's episode is with Mustafa Kambai, currently a venture consultant at Seamlessly and was formerly the GM at Uber Northwest and head of customer operations for the whole of the UK. Thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks, James. Pleasure. Please, can you just give us a background to what you did in the lead up to joining Uber and then how that experience was and, and, and what you've been doing since? Uh, we'd love to. And lots of different experiences to share. I think when somebody sometimes looks at my LinkedIn profile and, and, and gives me a shout saying, you've had, you know, sees my series and you've had a quite an interesting career and, and interesting companies. And um, I think I, it's just, I, I think, you know, it's super fortunate. I've been super fortunate to have worked with some really, really fantastic companies. I think I've, I've always just had a passion for business and coming out, I, I graduated at LSE and a large percentage of people at LSE end up going into the city, banking, consulting or, or, or lawyers. And I sort of went the other way. I wanted to go into industry and, and into business. And, and I think that's where a lot of my sort of foundation came from. I, I, I started my career at Mars, which was just an amazing camp company, a really, really strong family values. Um, and I was an M&A there worked on some really, really good deals uh, in the US in pet care and, and organic and, and worked really closely with the Mars family. And one of the things I think found there is that the Mars company on the foundations and the principles, they had five fundamental principles. They Everything they, they did surrounded those values. And then you could sort of being living and breathing in everything that they did, how they operated. And my first job at Mars was in Peterborough in the pet food factory. So that was Peterborough's um one of their landmarks there when you hit when you hit the the a1 and you come off into peterborough you see this big tower and it's the dry pet food plant and that was one of my first roles being a shift manager and i looked about 12 with a hard hard hat um helmet my scrubs on and and sort of leading a shift of about 30 um 30 guys uh, middle-aged guys <laughs> in middle england and telling them what to do and you can imagine how that was received from somebody who looked about 12 um but great great experience you know that was all mars's ethos ethos was you know roll up your sleeves be on the shop floor uh, and just you know uh muck in and 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 learn from the from the ground up and that was their ethos in their company and it was and it was all about 70 percent on the job 30 percent through through training and and learning etc so just amazing experience and amazing you know, part of my career for about five years where I sort of ended up in M&A, as I mentioned, working some really strategic deals and some really transformational deals. You know, it's sort of how you take Mars from being number three pet player in the US to number one and how a acquisition of 25 plants around the US gets them close to a Walmart and, and they can sort of, you know, come up with the cost and the logistics to sort of deliver. So really, really good experience. And and I sort of then thought, okay, well, what do I want to do next? You know, and I, I was, I, I sort of saw my role at Mars as being about value management. It's value managing value with large transactions, and I wanted to get more into value creation. And what, and I had that start. I've always had that startup buzz, and I had an opportunity. This when I was with Mars, I was in the US, and I had an opportunity to come back to the UK and join Virgin. I thought this could be amazing. You know, where else do you want to learn about startups than um, with Virgin? with Sir Richard Branson, you know, some of the leading brands that are there. Um, and I came back to the UK in 2008. And I remember our CEO then, uh, Gordon McCallum, saying, did anybody tell you not to come? You know, this was the worst time in the, in, in the climate. We'd hit recession. And it's like, there's no money. There was no deal making money. And it was like, well, what do we do? Um, but we came in. Uh, I, I joined. I joined the team. We started. And it was a time when 
Virgin was going through a really interesting time. They had a very much a sector focus and they wanted to really get into healthcare and financial services. And you may remember around that time, there was a lot of businesses getting into polyclinics and how to get into the primary care uh, provision of, of uh, medical services um, or GP services. And, uh, and then in the financial services, this is when the Northern Rock deal was coming through. And, you know, how does Virgin go from just being a credit card and a reselling business to actually having a great banking sector and, and disrupting that, that, that whole area. And, uh, and here I come joining in sort of thing and uh, get attached to a couple of deals, no money anywhere. Everybody sort of, you know, scrambling around Mark, stock markets, absolutely tanking. Uh, and we just you know, strapped in at that point and just said, okay, well, well, what can we work on? And I think my biggest learnings at Virgin was, again, their values, but very different set of values to Mars, which was all about championing the customer. And uh, my remit was in corp- corporate development, which was looking at new businesses, ideas that came through either through from externally from the public or from Sir Richard Benson himself or from the team, uh, and then really vet them out, assess, you know, is it something that fits with Virgin values? And they were, again, very simple, more on, does it champion the customer and really true to being champion the customer? Is it fun? Can it hit the investment targets as well? And can we really change the landscape for customers? You know, that was such a big part of Virgin that going to anything, you know, can we change that experience? Can we do something differently? Is the customer being underserved? And we really unpicked that when we completely break down the customer experience and then look at it. This is how Virgin would do this and then rebuild it back up and what it would look like. And I, I learned that in spades. You know, we, we did that and all the business plans that we put together. And healthcare was a really interesting one. Like healthcare, we'd actually launched, by the time I, I started with Virgin, we'd, had, we'd already sunk quite a lot of money. We'd op- we were in the process of opening up a launch test site in Swindon. And I remember pitching to Sir Richard Branson and, and him asking, you know, well, what is fundamentally going to be different for the customer experience? You know, how are we really going to change in healthcare? Very difficult because it becomes the, that eight minute window between the patient and the doctor. That's so important. And you can put the whole wrapper around it in terms of the surgery, the decorations, et cetera, but how are you fundamentally changing that experience? And that was super difficult about healthcare. And I think that we went through a lot of different iterations um, but then we fin- finally found a partner, um, a company called Asura Medical, that um, were doing something similar in this space and where we could leverage their network, the, the practices that have already been created and apply the Virgin brand experience into it, which be- became about, it's become a lot of the infrastructure, the lists and how do you manage that patient experience, which was really underserved, but letting the doctors do what, what's best, you know, letting them do their treatment in the best way, but not having to worry about the whole practice management piece coming through. So that was one project I worked on um, and worked on a number of others uh, in data insights, but also um, particular pet one was um, we had a, a pitch that came through one of the ex co-founders of Virgin Mobile who'd launched that with, um, with, with O2 back in the day. And they were saying, well, we've got all these devices in the ecosystem and there's nobody service them when your Wi-Fi goes down, when you're, when you get hit with a virus and your, your pictures that you might have about be at risk, nobody really supports them because if your computer crashes, you phone up, who do you phone? Do you phone Apple or do you phone your Virgin Media? Do you phone the software that you're running? And everybody says it's not their problem, but nobody's really owning it. So we thought there was a great opportunity there to really own this problem. And we put together a whole great business model of, you know, how we could create an applet and an application to sort of remotely take over people's devices 
find out what the issue was, service it, take a virus off, or help them connect their device, and do this all remotely. So we we raised um, raised some funding internally from Virgin, um, pitched the business plan because I said it meets meets the values, it, it, it works. And we launched a delivery center out of Philippines. We, we hired 100 people and uh, set up a fantastic experience. So we used to call, you know, how do you virginize the experience? How do you take a typical call center experience? You know, when if you're an Adele and phoning up the tech support line, it's all very pre-scripted and, and, and rigid. And we said, how, do we, how would Virgin do this? And we, we created a fantastic experience. We built it up, we built the app. And I remember the first day launching and sitting and hitting the button and turning it on, like, right, phones are gonna ring, but, but nothing, you know, it's just quiet. So we created such a fantastic experience, but the demand wasn't there because it was a very new area. It was very different, it was unknown. And we realized that actually we needed partners on board to drive that volume. So, you know, we then built up partnerships with people like AVG, Toshiba, Virgin Media to sort of build that up. But that was a really good learning for me whereby, A, you're leveraging the brand and the experience to create something very new. And you're trying to disrupt a space which is maybe untapped. But the brand and the values can only take you so much. You know, it's like, I think where Virgin was really does well is when it goes into a pre-existing already service market and it comes in and it's, it's maybe not being championed and there's maybe incumbents who are not giving the best experience and they come in and they shake up the whole experience, such as in the airlines or such as for cable and internet. I think for new businesses, it's tougher because you're still up against the same challenges any startup would be, which is driving demand, proving the business case and getting those sort of initial customers to come through, which requires funding, budget uh, and creating awareness. So category creation is tough, even when you have a brand such as Virgin. What it can give you, it gives you credibility and it gives you trust, which a lot of early startups don't have. So you have that and you, and, you, and you have that backing to go on, but you still go through all the initial challenges. So that was a great learning for me. We sold the business to our suppliers because um, there were incumbents in this space, but it was a great journey of taking a startup very quickly over a four year period from inception to building it up, to actually selling it to a, a strategic partner as well. Um, so that was sort of my run up to my career before Uber, where I'd um, looked at large scale, working in a corporation, large scale deals, but versus also um, startups under the safety and umbrella of, of Virgin. Yeah. And then, so how did you then move from there to, to Uber? I actually went back to some of my mentors at Mars um, and asked them, you know, well, what do you think I should be doing in the next stage of my career? And they're like, you've got some great strategy experience. You've got some great initial startup experience, but you haven't really ran a big business. You haven't really ran a big p and You haven't really delivered through a big team. And I really took on that feedback. Um, and I thought, okay, well, that's a really good point. You know, if you want to scale a business, you need to be working in that environment. And I could either do that myself, potentially looking at starting up a business, working it through, which I thought would take longer. But I'd heard about Uber and just over two years in London and, and a year in Manchester. And I initially looked at their corp dev team and looking at um, starting there. And actually they said, look, we're looking for some GMs to run, a, run the North. Would you be interested? I think you'd be a really good fit. Uber's pitch at that point was you run your city, you become a mini CEO of your city, so to speak, and you run your city how you want. I think, okay, it sounds like a good intermediate between being in a large corporate, but being in a startup and having the safety net there. And so what was it like when you joined? What was sort of the first day like? How big was your team initially? And, and what did it grow to in the end? Uh, it was a very small team. So we were like literally six of us in the team. 
And I remember my first day and the team tried to onboard me as a driver. We used to onboard 30, 40 drivers every day. And so coming through and it's like, yep, here you go, sit down. Here's a presentation. This is what you need to know. I'm like thinking, okay, let's just run with this and see what happens and, and how it goes. So I sort of, that was my first day, you know, sort of going through a real driver experience of going, being onboarded onto the Uber app. We were in a really cool office in Manchester in, in sort of these converted uh, mills. Felt very tech, very startup a very small team and then my first week was literally supporting drivers onboarding drivers doing tickets and I remember calling my friend on one of the nights because I, I used to literally do three days a week in Manchester I'd, I'd leave at 6 30 a.m on a Monday come back at about 11 p.m on a Wednesday to London uh, and I remember saying to my friend um one of the first week is what have I done you know this is like crazy you know it's like I'm sitting in a small office onboarding drivers and doing supporting and running tickets like is this really what I signed up for? And it was tough, right? But it was a lot of fun as well. What we realized is that is where the city was breathing. It came back into my Mars days of being on the ground, on the floor, and it was what drove the city. Uber was all about getting supply on the road. If you can get supply, which is partner drivers, if you had vehicles, you can deliver trips. If you can deliver trips and if you can have the right amount of vehicles, you can give the best experience possible. And it was all um, supply and demand in that way. What was the moment where you sort of had that wake up moment when you realized you were on a rocket ship and what was that feeling like? At, at Uber, it comes in so many different levels. I mean, it was an absolute amazing experience. And as I mentioned, you're onboarding drivers. The whole culture and the whole business was was driven on trips. You know, that's at that point when I joined, it was you grow your city on how many trips are you doing per week? Because that's you can sort of see how many how many how many riders are you, you servicing? It was so data-driven as well. We had access to so much data in terms of the, the metrics of how we're performing minute by minute, hour to hour, week to week. So you're tracking that performance and you're seeing your city grow live. Every time you onboard a driver, they get on, they hit go on their app and they start taking trips. You're delivering more trips. And so every week bringing drivers on board means you're making a direct impact back to the city back to your trips and back to your performance. So that was super measurable. And the growth curves were just phenomenal on how we were growing. We were a really big city uh, in, in Europe because the dynamics just worked. But then you're, you're still small in the grand scheme of things because you think I'm a small team and you just think that's your little business and that's your little bubble. But then you go to London and you realize, oh, this is getting bigger now. There's like, there's people everywhere. This is nice shiny office. You see the other trips that are happening and you see other cities and how they're performing. And then you go to San Francisco. And then you think, oh my God, this is, this is a really big thing. And then you meet Travis. You know, I, met, I remember meeting Travis at when we had Uberversity. And you think, wow, this is, that's, I think, when the, the reality really starts sinking in terms of the scale of what you're part of. Like you could be working in your city, um, you know, whether it be Sheffield and it's a small office and, and running a small amount of trips within Manchester or then London or then sitting in Global head, uh, HQ. But you realize what we're doing on the ground is how important that is to the broader vision and mission that we're plugging into. But so the whole picture, I think, really brought it alive. But you see it at every level. There's a different level that this is a rocket ship that you're on. And um, what was it like meeting Travis? How would you sort of describe him and his energy? Uh, super, super impressive. Super impressive and super focused. You know, this was somebody who just obviously been been you know, the, the playbook concept, so to speak, that was there. You can see 
And by that time, Uber had been around for seven, eight years. So we were going through so many different iterations and we're, we're scaling. Right? We weren't a startup anymore. And I think just his vision and passion for the product and, and that energy was just phenomenal. I remember on pricing was a super difficult one and super sensitive point at that point as well. Um, one of the toughest tasks I had coming into Manchester was was our, our pricing model and we had to look at pricing across Manchester. And our notion was to make it super attractive for riders that you know um to be able to get a ride and, and convenient affordably get around but make sure the economics also work for partner drivers in terms of how much they can earn per hour and and, and travis used to just boil it down so simply like supply and demand and you bring the price down demand goes up and everybody's more efficient and that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to make this as efficient as possible because gone are the days where you be on the road for an hour, you sit, have a break for 20 minutes, and then you get another trip. And then you have a break for 20 minutes, you have another trip. We're utilizing that full hour. And, and people who come onto the platform know they're on, they're going to get trips, and they're efficient. And then they want to go home, off the platform, they've done the day, and, and they're, they're, they're off. So just that simple concept, and the simple concept of hit a button, get a ride, was the whole DNA of the company. And... My, my own personal mission in Manchester used to be, I want to make getting an Uber quicker and cheaper than a cup of coffee. So it was ETAs of less than two minutes. So the minute you get hit that button in the app, there's an Uber out there in two minutes. And, and you can do that short trip for less than 250. Uh, and, and, and when we hit those economics, we just see it just explodes. You know, it's like partner drivers are getting the trips through, they're super efficient. Riders are coming on board, we're getting new use cases. Um, and people can move around the city in a way that they couldn't do before. So it's just just amazing. And while you were growing, what was happening in the valley? I guess we weren't as exposed as much to the funding. Uber was changing so quickly. We were probably restructuring every six months because the growth that a company would see over three years, we would see in, or maybe more than three years, we would see in six months. And I think that's probably what we felt, like you could be on the ground running and driving that growth, but then the infrastructure and the support structure around that needed to change and adapt to support you. So for example, just in my first year, we went from having a city model where you'd be running your city, and you have lots of different GMs around the country um, running your city to becoming, um, to be now actually running the, the operations around the UK. So, you know, all of us ran a pillar because we thought we're all doing the same things in all our different cities and it's, it's a bit inefficient. And actually we can put our best heads in the way to sort of lead our functions and, um, and apply that across the UK rather than applying it per city level. So I think that was a big change that we started seeing happening where Uber's playbook up until that point was very much about city growth, city, city CEOs, I think Travis used to call them. Um, to becoming now functionally led, right? Functionally led either from what we call mega regions like um, uh, Europe or London would be a mega region just because it's a super big region to them being your, your local sort of regions as well. And I think that was the model that was how do you migrate? How do you now run a region in that way, but still stay connected and close to your cities? You know, what's the right model so that you don't lose that ability of being super close to your customer, being in tune with your city and your city dynamics, but striving and driving for efficiencies wherever you can. So scaling operations, anything that could be routine, repetitive and scaled, we playbooked, automated, and then pushed it through. And that was a very quick cycle that would happen. You know, every six months we'd be restructuring and, and changing our teams to adapt to that model. And I think that's probably what I saw else happening elsewhere. We were, I think, in, 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 in the UK, 
we were always sort of spearheading that and, and being earlier in the curve of that just because we were in a much more mature market. Uh, and I think we became a bit of a playbook for other markets to sort of mimic and adapt on as well. So, um, yes, I think what we did probably became repurposed in, in other areas. So that leads me to a sort of question around flexibility and input and how much was driven by the board and, and senior members in the Valley versus how much responsibility was given to you guys in the UK as GMs and shaping those shifts in operations and infrastructure? We had a lot of autonomy and that was the, one of the great things with Uber because every city is different, especially in the UK, every city is different because the way we're regulated, the jurisdictions and the requirements. It wasn't always a blanket model for all regions because we had to adapt to those nuances. Um, but more strategic discussions, let's say like pricing, we did have to feed into sort of the central teams. We had a lot of support. So we, we would come up with our recommendations. We would come up with our assessments of what the markets required. But then we'd get a lot of support, I'd say, much more from central teams in terms of looking at other markets, other playbooks, other models that we could lean into, which I think was, was great. But then obviously the approvals come through, but we had a lot of input into that. An example, specific example, I think is quite an interesting one is that one of my remits was to test Manchester's the first developed city to test cash. Now, Uber's core part of Uber's proposition was to be cashless. And that was a, a key benefit for drivers because they're saying we have this term of runners in the market, you know, when you may take a, a somebody takes a, a, a cab and, and then doesn't pay fare and runs off. That's a big issue for partner drivers. You know, it's a safety element for them, a risk for them. And what Uber meant is that they had a different demo of riders coming on board, which was a lot better, a lot safer for them, and they didn't have to deal with cash, which they didn't like. But we'd seen cash in other markets like Egypt, India, Pakistan, open up the market to demographics that didn't have access to a credit card. And it was just phenomenal in terms of the growth it unlocked in terms of other use cases and profiles. But we wanted to see, could it have the same impact in developed markets? So we tested in Manchester was the first one. And I remember I had a lot of input with the central teams on that one. It, it was a real pain point for partner drivers when we did it because they didn't want to deal with cash and it left with a lot of issues. And we had to do a lot of work to sort of see the benefit of cash. Does it unlock more trips than the potential pain point it causes in terms of additional support, partner dissatisfaction and the negativity that's there. And ultimately, we decided not to scale cash in these, in these markets. But we, again, paid a big part into a global strategy there. Um, from something which was piloted in, in, in Manchester here. So what is a special characteristic that you experienced at either Uber or other places that you think lots of businesses should try and replicate, which may help them be you know, a high growth business? What was unique with Uber is, and what was just, ama I think, amazing for me personally was just the sheer talent of individuals in the company, just super, super smart. Um, really, really impressive. Their ethos and their attitude was really hardworking and really wanted to make a difference. The reason they joined Uber was to genuinely make a difference. Um, they changed their career maybe being in consulting or banking and, and come into it and sort of, you know, had the first chance to really mold and grow a business. And, and that autonomy unlocks so much potential and you've got smart people working hard in these areas to really make a difference. It's just a really, really good formula. And the thing that came on top of that is the trust, the trust and the mutual respect that the culture created to enable those individuals to flourish and do the right thing. I think those ingredients created an amazing dynamic at Uber and enabled them to scale as much as they did. You know, if you've got taking the city model, which was, I think, the playbook that really led to the growth, um, 
that happened because of the formula that they had on the individuals that led those cities. Yeah. And then since leave, leaving Uber, you've worked with lots of founders. What do you think makes a great founder in your opinion? Being a founder of myself um, in, in some of my businesses and having worked with some of the, the best founders out there, well, not closely with Travis, but you know, I'm exposed to Travis, but with Sir Richard and the Mars family themselves. The, va- the consistent values I've seen that sort of drive, drive the, their businesses has been just the passion and conviction in the mission. I think this relentless belief in what you stand for and embedding that through the DNA of the company is what motivates everybody to get out of bed in the morning, to plug in and, and, and do their best work. And I think what, that hasn't wavered in some of the best founders I've seen. They've been super, super focused on that, laser focused on that. And they see the broader, broader vision of where they'd like the company to take them. Um, and I think, you know, in Uber, it was super simple when it started with, with Travis and Garrett. It was, uh, you know, push a button, get a ride. And that just expanded into so much. With Virgin, it's been about really championing the customer. And I think with Mars, it was the family values, you know, some of the, how they've grown their business and, and how they've sort of grown regions and invested in regions and countries in that way with their product, product portfolio. It, it's, it's, been, it's been what's consistent. And, and when I work with founders now and in this tough environment and tough climate that we've got, you can so easily weigh from that because you can come under funding pressures, growth pressures, if, especially if you're disrupting a particular space. But conviction of what you started off for and why, and if that's mission driven in itself, means your team will stand behind you and, and constantly support you um, through those tough times as well. So. What characteristics do you really value in, in colleagues and people you work with? So for me, it boils down to trust, mutual respect um, and, and commitment to do the right thing. I think that's what I either founding teams that I'm working with, partner teams, anybody I'm working for, they're, they're the values that, that come out the most. And, and it's, it's, it's hard enough to do business right now. And especially in the climate that we're in, and especially when you're a startup, you're up against so much that you want to be working with people who don't have a political agenda or, or, or a hidden agenda. And you want to be able to have that full faith and trust in the individuals to do the right thing. Then I think everybody can do their best work um, and then work, work full stream. So I think that's always a super important. Anybody I work with, that's sort of my, one of my pre, pre-filtering criteria. And you're doing some work at the moment advising startups and growth businesses with Seamlessly. Can you explain a bit more about Seamlessly and your role there? That's right. Yeah. So I'm super keen to be able to help other companies on their scaling journey through the experiences I've had. Seamlessly is is my venture consulting company where I help um, early stage businesses to scaling companies, um, both with their growth strategy, their sourcing strategy, or their funding strategy. I'm working on a couple of really exciting projects right now, uh, working with a company um, who is leading the dropshipping space, a company called Avisim. Um, very early stage, uh, launched last year, and trying to disrupt how sellers and suppliers transact without having to take inventory of stock and be able to diversify the products that they sell through the different options of be at a marketplace or their own storefront or their e-commerce site, which is super exciting. And I'm also working with a, a packaging company, Zoom, US-based company, who are aiming to build the largest global molded fiber network in the world. And uh, I'm 
scaling their European expansion strategy for them. So super exciting, especially seeing how much plastic we are at risk of putting into the environment. We are at risk of having more plastic than fish on this planet, which is a, a really harsh reality. Brilliant. And so where can people find you and what's the best way to engage with you? I think LinkedIn is probably the best. I think I always get a lot of inbounds on LinkedIn and my ethos is, you know, always give everybody half an hour. Ping me on LinkedIn and if I can uh, get a slot for you in the diary, more than be happy to. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been great to hear about your experiences of Mars and Virgin and Uber and now with uh, lots of new and exciting startups. So thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to have you. Great. Thank you, James. Really appreciated it. Lovely to share and reminisce on some of the great journeys that have been there. A huge thank you to Mustafa for sharing his riding unicorn story. It must have been absolutely amazing to be at Uber in those early days. Next week's episode is with Lucas London from Lick Home, one of the fastest growing DTC brands in the UK. It should be another great episode. So catch you next time on Riding Unicorns.